Well, good evening, and welcome to a summer of Psalms. If you uh, are not aware of that, um, the, for the entire summer, um, we'll be going through the book of Psalms. Uh, tonight, I'll be looking at Psalm 73, so uh, go, ahead, go ahead and turn there if you will. I know Jeff and Richard Hall and Jim Umloff, I think we'll be doing uh, two or three Wednesday nights apiece, and Randy Ray and B.J. Odie. So make plans to attend this summer as we move through um, several different Psalms. Uh, what we're going to look at tonight is Psalm 73. The author of this psalms is Asaph. Now, that's not a character you may be that familiar with, but as you're turning there, let me just put him in context. In First Chronicles, we find out that uh, Asaph was a musician, a singer, who was appointed by David to lead worship in uh, the tent of meeting. And also, in other books of the Old Testament, you find... Uh, the name Sons of Asaph mentioned. Um, and apparently this was a famous music group that led worship at different points uh, for the Israelites. And Asaph was the father of the Sons of Asaph. So uh, that's who wrote this psalm. Now, if you will, follow along with me as I read the psalm for us. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I hidden in, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. 
Now this psalm is a revealing story of Asaph as he moves from a high mountain of faith and belief that God is good into a valley of doubt where he questions, is God good to his people? And then the process as he moves out of that valley and back again to that mountain of faith. Now at the beginning of this psalm, Asaph declares his faith in the goodness of God. As you can see in verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. There's no question there. God treats his people with love and compassion and kindness. And that was the place that Asaph started. But then we quickly find out that um, Asaph begins doubting whether God is good to his people. He begins to question that. We see in verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Now the cause of this doubt is attributed to Asaph focusing on the circumstances around him. And particularly the circumstances occurring to a certain group of people. That group of people happens to be the arrogant and the wicked, as you read in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, two things I want to note as we, as we explore who these people are. First of all, the Hebrew word that's translated arrogant here, more frequently in different places in the Old Testament, it's translated praise in reference to praising God. The idea indicated here by those that are arrogant is those people that praise themselves, that look to themselves and give themselves the glory that is due God that are boastful, that are proud. And wicked, those who are wicked, the prosperity of the wicked. In Malachi 3.18, don't turn there, let me read it to you, we find a definition of wicked. Malachi 3.18 says, So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. So we find a definition in the scripture of the wicked, those who do not serve God. So here we have Asaph questioning whether or not his God, the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is good to his people. And the cause of this question is, is, is he looked around. He looked around at people he saw, and he noticed arrogant people, people who gave praise to themselves, who attributed glory to themselves rather than God, and who were prosperous, and they were wicked. They had wealth. They had comfort. And all of a sudden, Asaph questions, wait a minute, what, what is this? Here I am. I see people of God suffering. I see people of God with sickness. I see people of God losing jobs, having difficulties in life. And I look at these arrogant and wicked people over here, and they're prospering. They've got more money than they know what to do with. They've got an ease in life. Is God really good to his people? Asaph starts to stumble in his faith. Now in verses 4 through 12, Asaph describes the arrogant and wicked people that he sees. Let me identify several characteristics that he sees in these people um, as we move through this. First of all, they're wealthy. In verse 4, you see the phrase, um, body is fat. And again, in verse 7, you see the eye bulges from fatness. Now, in our culture, 
um, fatness is not once uh, typically attributed to prosperity. But in this culture, it was. Someone who was fat had an ease in life and had tremendous amounts of, of food and comfort. And it was, it was, it was a, a glorified state to be that way. So we can see that they were wealthy. They had an easy life. Look in uh, verse 4. No pains in their death. There was no suffering there for them. And again in verse 5. Not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They don't have to deal with those things that common folk have to deal with. Loss of a job. Wondering where the next meal will come from. Uh, how will I pay for my child's education? Etc. They had an easy life. They were disrespectful to God. Look in verse 9. They have set their mouth against the heavens. And then again in verse 11. They say, referencing the wicked, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? They questioned God Himself. God doesn't know. You see the disrespect to the Almighty God there? They are proud, the arrogant and the wicked. In verse 6 we see, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They wear it as a garment. It's not something they're ashamed of. They have it right out there for everybody to see. They're proud of what they do and how they think and who they are. In verse 8, they speak from on high. And then again in verse 9, their tongue parades through the earth. To me, I can just, in this image here of their tongue parading through the earth, I can just picture the arrogant and wicked man just out there blabbing about what he's done and how much he knows and how he's got things going and everything's okay. And he's a self-made man. That's what I see. There's a pride there that Asaph identifies. They're violent. In verse 6 we read, The garment of violence covers them. They laugh at injustice. We read in verse 8, They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They laugh at it. They mock it. They wickedly speak about it. It's good. That's right. i got a bunch of people working for me, and I'm paying them nothing. And it's okay. It doesn't matter. They don't deserve it anyway. I'm the one that needs to be getting wealthy. There's that pride and that arrogance and that, that laughing at injustice. And they're immoral. In verse 7 we see, The imaginations of their heart run riot. There's no standards. Whatever I can think up, whatever I can dream, whatever I want to do, I do. Those were the arrogant and the wicked that Asaph saw. And they prospered. Their crops came in well. Their companies flourished. Society looked at them and gave them fame and notoriety. And here's Asaph questioning, is God good to his people? Well, when I first begin to think of arrogant and wicked, immediately what popped in my head were, was a mafia boss or a drug lord or a gang member. I think arrogant and wicked. Those are the things I think of. But I found myself not being envious of any of those people. Sure, they may have wealth and mansions and uh, things, but I also am aware that their life is lived in tremendous fear. It's not a life of ease. The mafia boss, 
uses intimidation and fear to get his way, yet he's wondering if his right-hand man is going to stab him in the back tonight. Um, so I don't find myself being envious of those types of pictures of arrogant and wicked people. But I want to tell you about a man I know, and I'm going to tell you his name, and uh, I'm going to tell you where I met him, because I think he fits this picture of what Asaph saw. And I find myself struggling at times being envious of him. This man's name is Gordon Clume, and I met him in a documentary I watched about a month back. It's called Frontier House. My wife will tell you I love to watch documentaries, and she doesn't. Um, kind of a little squabble we have at times. But she was very gracious, and she allowed me to watch this one uh, documentary called Frontier House. Did anybody see that? Some of you all saw that. So you all know who I'm talking about, Gordon Clume. Now, for those of you who did, let me briefly tell you what this documentary is about. They took three modern-day families, and they placed them in Montana for the summer for five months. Um, they placed them in Montana as an 1883 family would have been. They had the clothing, the tools, and the technology of 1883, and they took three 2002 families, placed them up in Montana for five months, and their task was to see if they could scratch a homestead out of the ground and be prepared to handle the harsh Montana winter. Well, Gordon Clume, a California businessman, was one of the men who brought his family out to Montana. It's a fascinating documentary. I'd recommend it. It, it, it caught my attention. I ended up watching. There were six, six sessions to it, and I watched all of them. I taped the last two. Um, they were on a Wednesday night, I think, so I could go home and watch them. But let me tell you about Gordon Clume, okay? First of all, Gordon Clume was a healthy man. You had to be. The labor was intensive. The conditions were harsh. They built their own log cabin. Um, they milked cows. Uh, they washed everything by hand. Um, well, he was healthy, and so was his wife and his children. You had to be to handle those harsh conditions. He was married. Beautiful wife. And after watching all of these sessions, I came to the conclusion they have a solid marriage. There's no way they could have gone through those conditions without having a healthy, good marriage. As you watch them interact, and this is a documentary, so you're, you're catching spur-of-the-moment events, they had good communication. There was a genuine love for each other. And they survived five months with four kids in probably a 200-square-foot log cabin cooking every single one of their meals and do it. They've got to have a good marriage to handle that. Um, and those of you who know what I'm talking about can agree. Well, he had a beautiful wife. His whole family was healthy. They had a good marriage. And he had children. Now, he had, there were four kids with him. Three of them were his children. One of them was his niece. They were teenagers all the way down to, I think, about 10 years old. These were, were beautiful children, respectful children. They had to be. A rebellious child wouldn't have made it out there. It was too close quarters. They would have been all over each other, tearing each other up. So here you have Gordon Clume, a, a California businessman, uh, healthy family, beautiful wife, good marriage, respectful children. And then at the end of the show, you find out where they live. They go back to their modern-day home. Gordon Clume not only had a good marriage and good kids and health, he was very wealthy. He had not a home, he had a mansion. And those of you who saw it know what I'm talking about. He had a mansion in Malibu up on a cliff overlooking a valley in the ocean. And they'd been building it. And then as I pondered this even more, 
this man must have had some prominence in his company or his business because they allowed him to take five months off. Anybody in here have five months vacation time? I don't. Brent, maybe we'd work on that. I don't know. But he took five months off and spent it in Montana. And he also referenced how he traveled all over the world in his job. So here we have Gordon Clume, a wealthy businessman who has a prominent position and probably is somewhat of an exciting job. He traveled all over the world. He has a good marriage, a beautiful wife, wonderful children. But from what I saw of Gordon Clume, I would define him as arrogant and wicked. Let me tell you some of the things I saw in this documentary. Uh, the first thing I noticed was that uh, his whole family and him cheated. They cheated on the whole experiment. Now, they knew what it was going in, but they cheated anyway. Um, he and his wife, under the cover of darkness, found some dump somewhere, and they go to, got a box spring out of it, and they slept on it for a month and a half. Well, the box spring would have been invented in the 1920s or 1930s. Okay? The women, his wife and the girls, got caught with facial creams and makeups and stuff that they'd smuggled in um, at the beginning. Uh, they, uh, they went out and traded bread for meat with the modern-day people in the local area there. And none of it they were supposed to do. He was immoral. And he justified everything passionately and adamantly. Any of these frontiersmen, if an opportunity came knocking at their door, what do you think they'd do? They'd take it. You better doggone well believe they'd take it. And that's the American way. And I'm quoting Gordon Clume. He had no regard for the rules whatsoever. Anything that they could imagine, hey, let's go and do it. And they had agreed to be in the experiment. Didn't make any sense to me. Um, Gordon Clume uh, also was very disrespectful to God. Those of you who saw it will probably remember this. There was a scene toward the end where they're, they're ready to leave their homestead. And he picks up a large Bible that probably would have been common in 1883. And he holds it and says, I'm taking the good book. And then he goes through this disrespectful, mocking prayer to God and mockingly references the Word of God. Well, I don't think any believer is going to do that. It was, it was in total jest and fun in a mocking manner. It made me angry when I saw it. Uh, Gordon Clune was very proud. When the historical experts came and gave their evaluation of how well they would have uh, prepared for the harsh Montana winter, they said the Clune family wouldn't have made it. You know, Gordon, Gordon Clune's response was, I don't know what they're talking about. We would have made it. Let me show you something. Look here, we got meat in the free. He made all the excuses, and he, he was like, they don't know what they're talking about. We would have made it. I know we would have. I've got enough con and thoughts in my head that we could have just wiggled our way through this, was the mentality I picked up from him. He also laughed at injustice. There was a, there was a situation where another homestead family, the Clunes owned a horse. The other family took care of it. The other family came to him and said, look, you know, we need some compensation for this. Well, they mocked him for requesting compensation and, um, and said, ah, we, you've been riding, isn't that good enough? He was taking advantage of another family and laughed at their wanting justice for it. Now, the one thing that Asaph saw in the wicked and arrogant he saw was violence. Well, I never saw Gordon Clume hit his kids or act violently toward anyone. In all honesty, he seemed like a pretty gentle man. But when you really think about violence, I think the root of violence is a self-centeredness. It's a sense that I deserve, I'm entitled, and if you're in my way, so be it. If i got to hurt you, I will. I certainly saw that in Gordon Clooney. Whatever he needed to do to get what he wanted, he did. Now, somebody like that I struggle with. 
as I drive my used cars and I go to my modest home and I hear of the people of God struggling in marriages or not even being married yet desiring to be, as I interact with people who are facing rebellion in their children or maybe even the inability to have children at all, when I hear of my brothers and sisters in Christ struggling financially, when I hear of my brothers and sisters in Christ losing a job, and I see a Gordon Clume, arrogant and wicked, yet prosperous, what do we do with that? Asaph began to slip. He began to question is my God good? As he looked around him, as we look around us, as we think about that person who sits next to you or has the office next to you at work and got the promotion that really ought to have been yours. As you see the family down the street from you that has many children, And yet, they have no respect for God whatsoever. And you struggle and desire to have children yourself or know of someone who does. As we focus on circumstances, I can see why Asaph would begin to question, is God good? But the psalm doesn't end there. Asaph changes something. He changes his focus. But before he changed his focus, he identifies some of the trouble that him that his view, his focus on the circumstances created in his life. First of all, he doubts, as we've indicated, is God really good? Look in verse 13. Asaph says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. He's asking himself, Why in the world do I bother serving God? Surely in vain I have done this. I ought to go out and laugh at injustice. I can go cheat. I can do that and maybe I'll get the promotion. Surely in vain I have done this. He doubts his God. You also notice that Asaph begins to complain. Look in verse 14. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Oh, don't you just start to hurt for Asaph. Poor man. He's stricken every morning and chastened all the time. Now, I have to admit and confess, I can really relate to Asaph here. I can complain very well. I've got it tough. You know, I've got three young children, and let me tell you something, they are a handful. Every time I get home, goodness gracious, it's all over me, you know, wanting my attention, and it's tough, you know? When I'm focused on circumstances, I can be a real good complainer. I can whine real well. So can Asaph. Asaph is also conflicted. Look in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now remember who Asaph is. He's a worship leader for the people of God. And all of a sudden, he's having these these thoughts. Is God really good to his people? And yet he's got to choose a song for them to sing at the next meeting. You see the conflict he has all of a sudden there? Wait a minute, is God really good? And yet we're going to sing praise to Him? Wait a minute, but the, but the wicked prosper. What a horrible place to be. 
He's troubled. Verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Now, Asaph doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay in this conflicted, troubled, doubting place. He changes. And what he changes is his focus. His focus moves from the circumstances around him to the God above. Read with me. I'm going to start in verse 16, and I'm going to read into verse 17. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein. Asaph changes his focus. He stops looking at the circumstances around him. He stops looking at the people around him and he looks to God. And it's at that point where he understands. When Asaph changes his focus and stops looking at the circumstances around him and gets his focus on God, he all of a sudden sees reality the way God does. He sees the reality of the wicked. He sees the reality of himself and he sees the reality of his creator. Look with me at this. He sees the reality of the wicked. In verse 18 you see, Surely you set them in slippery places. He understands that their prosperity is temporary. He sees that they are destroyed. You cast them down to destruction, verse 18 and 19. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And he realizes that the wicked are forgotten. Verse 20. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. What happens when we wake up in the morning? We maybe have a faint fog of an idea of what we dreamt. But as the day goes on, it disappears. That's how God references the wicked. So he sees the reality of the wicked. Their prosperity is temporary and they will be forgotten and destroyed. He sees the reality of himself. He realizes how weighed down he is. In verse 21 we read, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. He's heavy. He realizes that a joy and a peace is missing in his life because he's been focused on the circumstances around him. And he realizes that he was not what God intended him to be. In verse 22 we read, we read, Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. This is not the will of God for Asaph, to be a beast before him. Man was created different than the beasts of the field. Yet Asaph identifies that as he focuses on the circumstances around him, he does not be what, he, he's not being what God intends him to be. He also realizes the reality of God Himself. Listen, I'm going to read 22 again and 23 and listen to how He changes here. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. He realizes the reality that our God is faithful. He doesn't give up. And thank goodness He's gracious. Even though I'm senseless and ignorant and like a beast before you, nevertheless, I am continually with you. God is faithful. That's the reality. God is our salvation. Look in verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me and receive me to glory. What a hope 
What a hope we have. Our God is our salvation. Not only does He guide us, but He receives us to glory. Also, God is our satisfaction. In verse uh, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Cars are nice. Homes are good. Central heat and air is incredible. Modern day food, what an ease. Children are a blessing. I love my wife. I don't want life without her. But none of those things will satisfy. God is our satisfaction. That is the reality. And I think by having Him as our satisfaction, we're able to enjoy those good things even more. And lastly, God is our sustainer. In verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our bodies will give out. But God is our sustainer. We have the hope of eternal life with Him. When Asaph changed his focus, when he changed where he was looking from the circumstances and the people around him to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the God who gives us his word, everything changes. His perspective, his reality of the wicked changes. His reality of himself changes. And his reality of his God changes. In conclusion, Asaph goes back to his starting point. In verses 27 and 28, follow along as I read. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He starts to slip. He moves down into a valley of doubt. But he changes his perspective and moves back to the mountain of faith. Now, what do we do with this tonight? We can certainly relate, and we could probably sit here and start naming names and talk about the arrogant and the wicked, and we could probably have a real good time and be here for a long time because I'm real good at pointing out stuff that people have that I think I deserve. It's called covetousness. It's a sin. But I don't think that would be beneficial for us. Another thing I don't believe that this Psalms does is answer the question... Why do the wicked prosper? I don't know why it doesn't answer that. But I can tell you in Job, that same issue is brought up. And God never answers it there. But boy, he challenges Job. And Job's response is, I'm going to cover my mouth. Oh, I've spoken, but I shouldn't speak again. Go look at it. It'll send, it'll send uh, shivers down your spine. I think it's Job 38, 39, 40, 41. It's powerful. I challenge you to read it. But that's not what this psalm does. It doesn't ask, answer that question for us. And personally, when I focus on myself and think that I'm the center of the universe, I think I deserve an answer. Why do the prosperous, why do the wicked prosper, God? But that's not how we're to live this life. We live this life theocentric, focused on God. He is the center of this world, not me. And he chose not to answer this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do like Job. I'm going to cover my mouth and I'm not going to ask that again. But what I do think this psalm has to tell us and has to challenge us is to ask each of us to evaluate where is our focus? Where do we expend our energy? 
do we focus on the arrogant and the wicked around us and their prosperity? Do I move into a place where I'm doubting the goodness of my Maker? Do I complain? Am I conflicted? Do I look out in my world and wonder, why do I bother? Or do I submit myself to the Word of God? Do I bathe myself in God's reality? Do I strive after having the mind of Christ? Do I come into the sanctuary of God and get my reality there? That's the only place I believe we will find reality. And that is that our God is faithful. He is our salvation. He is our strength and He is our sustainer. What more could we need? Now, I hope you don't walk out of here tonight thinking that Jonathan Todd was saying that we should never ever have any pain or problems or hurt in our lives. I'm not saying that. This world we live in has pain in it. It has disappointment. It has hurt. And each one of us has experienced that. But what I'm saying, what I believe the Scriptures challenge us to do is to focus on God in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that hurt. I don't, I don't believe He takes it all away. Look at the prayer request we had tonight. Ms. Richardson, I think of your son. My heart grieves for him. It's difficult raising children and to do it on your own and to be, have health problems. That is painful. That is, you can see a mother's love for her son. But when we focus on God, we have hope. We have faith. We have trust. It doesn't mean the pain won't be there. But it means I can make it through the pain. It means I am able to still praise and worship my God and know and trust that He is good, not because my life is perfect, but because His Word says He is good. My God is faithful, not because I experience it every day of my life, but because His Word says He is faithful. My God is my strength, not because I feel it all the time and have this warm fuzzy, but because His Word says He is our strength. And I know He sustains me, and I trust Him not because I can always see exactly what He's doing, but again, because His Word says so. Where do we put our focus? That is the challenge of this Psalms. And that is, I, I hope, what I know has been challenged in my life as I've studied this, and what I hope the Spirit pricks you all with tonight. Where do you spend your energy? How much time do you spend saturating yourself in the Word of God? Is it the same amount you do watching the news or watching dramas or let me point it back at me watching documentaries? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you. You are a God who is faithful. You are a God who loves us and you are a God who is good. And I know that because you tell me that about yourself. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will challenge and convict each and every one of us when we focus on the circumstances around us rather than focusing on you. Father, I pray that you will convict us and challenge us and give us what we need to saturate ourselves in your word, to have the mind of Christ. I thank you for your word. 
I thank you for the freedom and the opportunity to study it. I thank you for the church, Grace Evangelical. I pray, Father, that you will continue to guide our elders and our staff and lead us. And may we be pleasing to you. May we, Father, reach this world for you. May people come here and hear how awesome you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray all of this. Amen.